From 9 News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join 9 Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. He's accidentally shot my wife. A young mother, dead. Knowing everything you know, we no proof of that we know right. now. An investigation over before it began. That child was innocent. I feel like I failed him too. Got feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time there ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. Oh, I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? The death of Jill Wells made no sense to her younger sister, Julie Evenson. For years, Julie wondered, was Jill's husband, Mike, telling the truth? Was it just a terrible accident? Was the original investigation as shallow as it seemed? Was it possible her sister was murdered? She came to Colorado two years after Jill's death with another of their sisters. They wanted to know more about the shooting that was blamed on Jill's son, Tanner. I was suspicious, you know, at first, and and then my sister Joy, she was very suspicious. Um, she just felt like there was something wrong. She asked if I could, wanted to go to Colorado with her, and we could go kind of investigate and talk to the sheriffs, and um, and that's when we both kind of started on the mission. They went to the ranch where Jill died and stopped at the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office in Hugo looking for answers to their questions. They got nowhere, and for a time, Julie let it be. But then in June 2008, she was back in Colorado. She returned to Hugo, pulled into the lot outside the Sheriff's Office, walked in the door, and asked to speak to an officer. I guess I just, I, I just want to know. Well, I want to know what, what happened. and. Yeah. Even if you can't know 100%, there's a all there's so many red flags. It was a Sunday afternoon. Someone new was in the office, a young, eager deputy named Albert Leach. I showed up the lobby at the sheriff's office and met with Julie and her husband, and she started asking me questions about her sister's passing back in 2001, which I did not recall because I did not work at the sheriff's office at the time. Um, so we sat and visited for probably two hours, and I was very intrigued and very moved by what she was telling me. So got written statements from him. Um, the following day, I spoke to the current sheriff, Tom Nestor, and asked him if I could look into that case and see what it was and how things went. And he said, absolutely. So him and I sat down that following day and opened up the case and looked at it. And when you opened it up, you found? Found a statement um, from a past sheriff, um, Leroy Yao, some photos, um, coroner's report, a few things like that. There, there wasn't a whole lot there, is that fair to say? That is fair to say. There was some things that we felt should have been there that wasn't there that didn't get done that we felt didn't get done. No autopsy was done, for example? Not that we did see in the file. No autopsy was done, um, limited photos, 
measurements, uh, diagrams. We did not recall seeing any in the file at that time. When Leach describes opening up that file, he's talking about a brown envelope, the kind you see in offices everywhere. Jill's name was written in ink on the outside. Inside it, he found the original two-page report from former Sheriff Yowell and his son, former undersheriff Alan Yowell. One piece of notebook paper with Alan Yowell's observations written on it. Two pages of notes from then coroner Don Bender, a form releasing Jill's body to a funeral home. Jill's death certificate, newspaper clippings, a Hunter Education Association shooting report, 17 pictures from the scene and 22 photos of the guns collected from Mike Wells, cassette recordings of Mike Wells' 911 call, of brief interviews with him and Tanner, and two chunks of dictation from Under Sheriff Yowell, a single piece of paper showing that the guns were returned to Mike Wells the day after the shooting, and lastly, Jill's driver's license. There was more missing than what he found, and Leach could see why Julie had questions. There were no crime scene measurements, no fingerprints, no ballistics tests, no formal statement from Mike Wells, no sketch of the crime scene, no copies of Jill's life insurance policies, no proper interview of Tanner by an expert at dealing with kids, and perhaps, most shocking, no autopsy report. I've always wondered is why an autopsy was never done. I mean, I've worked several cases and been on several cases, and you always have an autopsy done. I can't speak for the people on scene back in 2001. I have no idea. Um, I just, it's, it's wondering, it's baffling why they didn't get an autopsy done that day. But they didn't, so Leach set out trying to do in 2008 what wasn't done in 2001. Well, I took the information that Julie gave me and started making some phone calls to some people up in the Woodland Park area and then had a few parties come down and did some interviews with them and um, followed up with life insurance policies that we did not have that in the file either and then started receiving all the life insurance policies coming in and looking into that and seeing how much life insurance there was and things like that. Did you have a gut feeling as to where this might be going? A few days getting into it, there was a lot of red flags that came up that we had a lot of questions and no answers. So I was really curious and wanted to move on with it and I got the sheriff and under sheriff's blessing at the time to uh, do what I wanted to do. One question Leach and his superiors tried to answer was this. Could a child Tanner's size work the lever action mechanism on the rifle that Mike Wells said he had fired? We took several other children that were around that same age, um, approximate weight, because we didn't know Tanner's weight at the time, but approximate weight and height, and had them work a gun similar to that gun. And none of them could do it without struggling, with either pointing it towards the ground, straight towards the ground, or raising it straight in the air, just because it was too long for them to handle, just too much rifle. That exercise only served to deepen Leach's suspicion. But the biggest red flag was Jill's multiple life insurance policies, including an application for $1.25 million in coverage a few weeks before her death and the $750,000 Mike Wells ultimately collected on those insurance policies. 
Leach began work on a search warrant to exhume Jill's body. The goal? Have an autopsy done, recover the bullet that killed her, compare it to the gun Mike Wells said Tanner had fired, if that rifle could be found. Once he knew what they had, the plan was to confront Mike Wells and question him about the day Jill died. It's clear that by that point in the investigation, Leach had an inescapable feeling about what had happened that spring day at the ranch. He had the life insurance. He had other troubling suppositions. He hoped he would soon have ballistics. And he was eager to see how Mike Wells would react to questions. Question he was never asked in 2001. Were you already thinking about how that interview would go, what you would ask, that kind of thing? Yeah. There was questions I had in mind, and I wanted to go into it easy and try to build a rapport with him. But then I was going to just point blank ask the question. The ultimate question, the right? The ultimate question. And that would have been? Why'd you shoot your wife? And then a sucker punch. Mike Wells, dead of a drug overdose. But even though Leach never got the chance to ask his questions, the investigation continued, and he got a break he might not have expected. The four guns that had been confiscated the day Jill Wells died and then returned to Mike Wells less than 24 hours later were in storage at a bank in Colorado Springs. We are very surprised, very, very surprised that uh, Mr. Wells still had his hands on those. After finding out of his passing, we found out that Wells Fargo had seized his property. So I contacted them and we ended up, I ended up doing a um, search warrant for the guns and retrieved those from Wells Fargo. Those guns went to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for testing. And even though Mike Wells was dead, Leach obtained a warrant to exhume Jill's body in December 2008. An autopsy was conducted and what was left of the bullet that killed Jill was recovered. It was broken into 13 pieces, not unusual in cases like this. Those fragments were compared to the bullets test fired from the four guns recovered from the Colorado Springs Bank. The testing was inconclusive both in terms of the ballistics and inconclusive even though they got a trajectory of the path of the bullet after it struck her, not knowing what position her body was in, the ability to, to take that trajectory back and... Well, without the accurate measurements that we never had our hands on. Um, there again, CBI could not say the actual trajectory of the bullet. Is it fair to say that with the passing of Mike Wells, with the inconclusive ballistics results, with the inconclusive trajectory and the lack of measurements and scene drawings and stuff, is it fair to say that the investigation sort of just, just hit a wall at that point? It did hit a wall. and. It was very frustrating because we were so close. I don't know if we would have got the answers we were looking for, but we were close. Say so you had gotten those answers, what did you hope to do at that point? Um, to properly charge the person that was should have been charged at the time. And my gut feeling would be Mr. Wells, not a five-year-old boy. Did you see anything that made you stop and say maybe Tanner was the one that fired the shot? We looked at all those angles and that's why we brought the kids in to see if there was a possibility. You know, you can't rule that out. You can't just blame 
somebody. And we looked at all the angles. And everything that we've looked at and done, we, it just does not point towards a five-year-old boy. Leach is not alone in his suspicions. Lots of people who have looked at this case question the official version of events. That that six-year-old boy, Tanner, accidentally shot and killed his mother. Remember that Jill's body was eventually exhumed and that an autopsy was conducted? We went to track down the guy who did that autopsy in 2008. about to visit Dr. Michael Doberson, a longtime coroner in Arapahoe County, uh, really highly respected forensic pathologist in uh, Colorado and, and nationally, um, who has some distinct thoughts about this case and about the coroner system in Colorado. You're good? All right. Um, would you say and spell your first and last name just so we have it on? Sure. It's Michael J. Doberson. And you are, you're a, a medical doctor? Yes. And a forensic pathologist? Correct. Um, how long have you been a forensic pathologist? Since, uh, since 1993, and that's about the time when I became the coroner for Arapahoe County. Okay, and that was my next question. How long were you coroner in Arapahoe County? It was about 21 years. Any guesstimate on how many autopsies you've done over the years? Yeah, that always comes up in court. It's, it's about 6,000. How about the, um, the number of cases where, you've, uh, where there's been an exhumation and then you've done an autopsy? That's probably a much smaller number, I'm guessing. It is, and, and it averaged probably about one a year. So over my career, I've probably done 15 to 20 of those. So I want to I want to ask you a little bit just about sort of standard protocol against the um, the backdrop of what happened on March twenty eighth two thousand one, and and it's a bit of a hypothetical because you weren't the coroner in that county on that date. But if during your time as coroner you get a phone call and you're told we've got a a death, it's a shooting. With a with apparently with a rifle, apparently accidentally committed by a six-year-old child. Uh, the only witnesses are the six-year-old child and his father. It happened in this remote area. What what would you do at that point at, as a as the coroner? Well, as coroner, my responsibilities are spelled out fairly clearly in the Colorado Constitution, and obviously. The event you're talking about is a sudden and unexpected death, and certainly one that occurred under violent or suspicious circumstances. So in a case like this, it's incumbent on me to investigate to the fullest that my office can, can do. Usually we, um, we investigate along with the local law enforcement agency. And uh, so it's, it's a fairly, it's a group effort. And what we try to do is, is um, to the best that we can, come up with a good picture of the circumstances that surround the death. And that's usually ongoing, but I think important in all this is that we carry out an autopsy. 
and an autopsy is a very detailed examination of someone who has died with the, um, with the goal of explaining that death as much as we can, not only coming to a determination of cause and manner of death, but to uh, collect pieces of evidence. In this case, it would have been very important to collect the bullet or the bullet fragments that, that we could uh, recover during the autopsy. Can you imagine a scenario with that set of facts, a shooting death at a remote location with a rifle allegedly fired by a six-year-old son, only witnesses the son and the father, where you wouldn't have uh, ordered or conducted an autopsy? No, no, I mean, that, that's a case that um, obviously begs for answers. And not only on a criminal level, but uh, a lot of times these deaths will involve insurance issues and, and things that we don't necessarily think of at the time, but can come up somewhere along the line down the road. When you hear all of that, given what you know about how this case was handled in 2001, and given your examination and, and involvement in 2008, what, what, what goes through your mind now when you think about Jewel Wells' death? Well, obviously the plot thickens once, once all of these issues are, are, are brought to light. Uh, but, but this is why we do an autopsy. When, when something like this happens, it's, it's always in the back of your mind that things aren't as they have been described to you. And you only get, well, in this, in this case, we did have another opportunity to do an autopsy, but if for some reason her body was cremated, you know, we would not, we would lose a lot of evidence. And essentially in this case, she was buried with evidence. And uh, we were lucky enough to be able to still carry out a very detailed examination and, and get some answers. But um, I mean, this, this is kind of a nightmare for any coroner that when you make a decision to not do something and then years later things uh, really bear out that they're, they're not what they appeared to be. Um, you know, you never make a mistake doing an autopsy, but you will make one not doing one. And that's always something that, that we've taught. But uh, this is an example of a, of a situation that um, is a lot more than it was thought to be at the time. The, um, the death certificate right now has accident listed as the manner of death, which, which I think of as this sort of the government's or the state's um, acceptance of the story that was told that this boy was trying to cock a gun and the gun went off and hit his mother and killed her and that it was an accident. Um, if you had the power to, to do something about the death certificate today, what, what do you think you would do? Well, I think knowing everything that we know now, I think this case would be classified as a homicide. And that would be up to the coroner and the jurisdiction where this happened. And I'm not sure if that was ever done. Was the death certificate ever amended? 
The death certificate has not been amended. It seems like there's a lot of evidence that's extremely suspicious. Yes, uh, at the very least, I think a coroner could classify this as undetermined. And in, in that ba basically means that we just don't have enough information to definitively make a determination one way or the other. But I think the preponderance of evidence that's been uncovered over the years in this case really points to a homicide. I'm just um, really disappointed that that hasn't been reflected in the death certificate. Although Dr. Doberson isn't a cop, he worked alongside detectives investigating murders and other crimes for years. And that perspective has left him with strong feelings, not only about the failures of the original coroner, but also about the performance of the law officers who investigated Jill Wells's death. Work that yielded a report that was two pages long. This is the sum total of the police investigation in this case, which I think this is, I sent you this the other day, but. Yeah, I, I had seen this and um, it's pretty cursory. You know, it's, it's, it's not certainly what I'm used to. Uh, usually a police report will have, um, will at least be quite a bit more voluminous. And, um, uh, you know, I think what's essential is that you have people talk to the, the apparent witnesses. And um, I believe that the sheriff or the undersheriff individually spoke to Tanner, the six-year-old who was present in all this. There wasn't, uh, uh, there wasn't a witness present to corroborate what exactly was said. We don't really know what, what Michael, the husband, had said. Uh, this leaves a lot to be desired. And uh, I think the sad part is that for some reason, the district attorney and the coroner relied on such a cursory examination to, to reach their conclusions. Uh, the death certificate was signed the next day, which in a case like this is almost unheard of. I mean, you talk about snap judgments and a rush to judgment. I mean, this was, was a situation where everybody seemed to want to close the books on this. I thought that interview went great. He's a really interesting guy. He's a guy that I have known now for close to 20 years professionally, and um, I've always found him to be a re really interesting interview. He takes his work very seriously. Um, and I thought that, uh, I thought it was really interesting that he, that he is convinced that there's enough evidence to call this a homicide. I thought um, uh, for me when he said that he recommended to the current coroner at the time to change the autopsy results and the death certificate, he seemed surprised to find out that never happened. Yeah, he, he, he definitely was. And, um, you know, if, if the current coroner were to conclude that it's just not clear what happened, there's a, there's a, there's another ruling which would be undetermined which would say that we don't know exactly what happened 
But we know that there's lots of evidence that it wasn't the accident it was reported to be. No matter what the truth is in this case, that's a young man who lost his mother at a young age, lost his mother traumatically, and has lived with that all these years, and has lived with the loss also of his father um, almost eight years ago now. Um, so, you know, obviously one of the questions we want to get answered is, what has all of this meant for him? Next time on Blame. She was infectious. As with so many who die young. Um, she just loved everybody. And she even had patients calling the hospital after they read it in the paper and said, was that my Jilly? Those left behind spend their time thinking, wondering. She's so positive, and that's why we never knew anything was going wrong. Looking for answers, reliving every moment, every conversation. She was always trying to make their marriage you know, well, better. Well, like to Jill were living separate lives. People had told her that one particular person had been seen coming in and out of Mike's room. Conversations like the last one Jill had with her sister Joy, around the time she applied for more than a million dollars in life insurance. Just before she passed away, she seemed like she was happy, like she thought maybe things were going to get better. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer, Anna Houston is the producer and editor, and I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on 9news.com slash blame.